Good morning. Genesis 3, 8 through 24. Let's read it. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, until you return to the ground. And so there's this play on words right here because Adam, his, uh, Adama is ground. And so basically, you know, if you came from the Adama, you will return to the Adama since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife as he clothed and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the, na- the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Sleep experts say, apparently, that over the course of our lives, we'll end up having somewhere around 100,000 dreams. 100,000 dreams works out to about three a night. Now, obviously, we remember only a tiny fraction of the dreams that we experience. Nightmares tend to be the ones that we remember most frequently, we remember the most. Uh, one common, you know, universally experienced nightmare is the, the chase dream. Somebody's chasing you. You're trying to get away. You're running with all your might to try and escape. And uh, the, the harder you run, what ends up happening? You don't get anywhere. It feels like you're running on a treadmill. You know, try as you might, you're, you are just stuck as the monster closes in. Another dream, uh, it's, it's the uh, I've forgotten dream. 
You're standing on a stage like the one that I'm standing on. You're in a play. You're performing in front of a larger audience. And when the time comes for you to say the very first line that you have, what ends up happening? You forget it. You've forgotten. You've forgotten to study for the test. One of the, my common nightmares that I would have in college is I'd be failing the class, but I forgot the, the drop date, the deadline for dropping the course, and so I'm stuck with it because you've forgotten. You've forgotten what you need to know. But you know what's the most common and recurrent dream and nightmare that human beings experience? Any ideas? It's the naked dream. You know, you're going along... Life, walking down the street, walking into the office, sitting down at the school desk, and all of a sudden you realize, I have no clothes on. Um, And what's interesting is that the other two dreams are at least possible. The first two dreams are possible realities. It's possible that you may forget. It's possible that you may not get away. But rationally, there's like a 0.0% chance that you would forget your clothes. No matter how airheaded you are, that would never happen in real life. And yet people all over the world, it's transcultural. All over the world, in every culture, in every place, are haunted by the same terrible fear that I will be naked and deeply, deeply ashamed. The serpent told us that God was not good. The serpent said there would be no consequences for disobedience. The serpent, we read last week, said that there will, there will only be supreme advantage. You will be like God, he said. You will, you will become a God. And our mother and father, rather than taking God at his word, they took the serpent at his and believed him. Buying into the promise of, here the, this is the promise, autonomy and supremacy. Buying into the promise of those two things, they rose up against God in an attempt to become gods themselves. And what happened is they and all of their children after them have, have felt ever since, we feel desperately naked and ashamed at times. Not always, not always. But isn't it true that there are points, there are, t- there are moments in our lives where we feel so helplessly inadequate and so uh, hopelessly uncomfortable in our own skin? Um, yeah, I've, I don't know. I've felt that way a lot recently, I, and maybe you have as well, where it's so hard to be seen. And I can catch myself doing it. I, I, I sense it when it's happening because I can't keep the, the gaze of another person for very long. I always find when my eyes start to just drop, then I know that I'm feeling particularly vulnerable right now, naked and ashamed. And maybe you can relate to that. Sin has just entered into the world in Genesis 3. The bomb has just exploded I'm encouraged, though, by this passage because of one simple thing. What do we see God doing seconds, minutes after sin and evil has entered into the world? What do we see God doing? 
he's searching for them. He's, he's coming, he's beckoning them to come out of hiding. He asks them questions. Yes, he, he begins by asking the question, Adam, where are you? Does God ask any questions in order to get information? Does he need the info? Is this new info that he doesn't know? Of course not. He's asking questions not for his benefit, for Adam's own benefit. He knows where they are. Adam, where are you, is an invitation to come out of hiding, to come to me. It's God taking the first steps towards rejoining and reconciling this horribly damaged relationship. God is taking the first steps towards them. And what does Adam do? Adam interprets this as a threat. Look what he says. He says, "Uh, I'm afraid of you. I don't want to be known by you. I don't want to be seen by you. Those of you who are counselors, or if you've been to counseling, you know this, that when a counselor sees somebody, a patient, who is all twisted up on the inside, the best counselors out there, they do not lecture their patients. Counseling does not equal lecture. The best counselors know that what you have to do is you have to ask them questions. Um, They ask questions to help the other person kind of come to see on their own. The best counselors know that questions are like little little breadcrumbs, little pieces of cheese that you put out strategically in front of the hole so that the little mouse will follow it it out uh, hiding on his own. The best counselors know that the way to help human beings is not to shove them out the hole. It's to coax them out into the light so that they would come willingly and of their own accord. Isn't it amazing that that's what God is doing right here? Only minutes after evil has entered into the world, instead of fire and smoke and recriminations and and judgment, instead, God comes with questions like a wonderful counselor, searching for them, trying to wake them up and help them to see the light. Adam, where are you? What happened? What are you thinking? Let me help you. Please come out. I want to be near you again. How many questions does God ask the serpent? Zero. God isn't a wonderful counselor to his enemies. But God is a wonderful counselor to his children. And like a good shepherd, he tenderly calls. So, here we are. Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit. They have usurped the place of God. They have aligned themselves with the enemy. And as soon as they do this, several things begin to start to spiral out of control. The first of which, we read about it last week, is they sow fig leaves together and... Do you remember what they make with their fig leaves? They make loincloths. Now, what is a loincloth? Well, a loincloth is basically underwear. Now, why would Moses make such a point of them making underwear for themselves? Have you ever thought about that before? Why is it that they sew fig leaves as loincloths? Why don't they sew fig leaves as like a ski jacket? (laughs) <laughs> or a parka, or a hat and scarf. Why loincloths? Loin and the answer is this. 
They are covering the place of intimacy. They are hiding from each other's eyes. They are covering the place where they have been intimately known by each other because they no longer feel comfortable being seen by each other's eyes. Maybe I, I, I thought about this this week and I thought, you know, could this explain our sex problems? Maybe this explains why sex is so difficult in marriage. Because right from the very beginning, uh, we, we are uncomfortable being intimately known even by our own spouse. We naturally want to hide from even our own flesh. The second thing they do, they hide from God's eyes, so they you know, run out into the garden and they hide behind trees. They don't want to be seen. The third thing they do, it's almost humorous, and I heard several of you laugh as I was reading it aloud, but I mean, the level of blame shifting here is ridiculous. Adam, why are you hiding from me? The right answer to that question should be, Lord, I'm hiding because I sinned. I sinned, Lord, and I am so sorry for doing so. But the answer that Adam gives back in return is, the woman you put here with me. Notice how he blames, he actually has the audacity to blame God. The woman you put here. You know that woman that you thought was such a great idea? Yeah, well, she made me do it. It it was her fault, and it was your fault. And then what does she say? She says, it's the serpent's fault. And here it is. One of the defining characteristics of human life and experience is, is written right here. We are um, consummate, consummate blame shifters. We are, we are willing to throw anybody else under the bus in order to justify ourselves. That is us by our very nature. And part of the problem with blame shifting, there's a lot of problems with blame shifting, but a big part of it is if you take a sinner and you give a sinner a polygraph test and you ask them, you know, hook them up to the wires. Are you to blame for what you just did? Sinners pass polygraph tests because they believe so strongly in the rightness of their position. It's it's a level of cosmic self-delusion that we experience. Um, And we are made uh, by nature to believe and to act this way. The Christian doctrine of original sin is a doctrine about our human nature. Why are humans so naturally selfish and don't want to take responsibility for our actions? It's a problem with our hardwiring. We are hardwired to believe this way. It's not that we enter into the world totally pure and that it's the environment and our families of origin that end up messing us up. No, we have fallen from our primal innocence and by nature, we naturally behave this way. Another way that I've used to describe uh, the doctrine of original sin is if sin is the color blue, then all of us, all of us have blue complexions. And, all, and every part of us is colored blue. So if you were to dissect, open my brain, you would find my mind is, is colored blue. My hands are blue. My eyes are blue. Go see, go see the optometrist and, and he'll tell you your eyes are blue. Um, your heart is blue. We're all, every part of us is colored blue like we're Smurfs. Um, we're not all necessarily the same shade of blue. 
Our, our sin doesn't manifest itself identically in all of our lives. Some are bluer than others, but, but every one of us has a blue complexion. And only supernatural inter- intervention in the form of what Christians call grace is sufficient to change our blueness and, and, and to drag us out of the pit that we've done, dug for ourselves. <sighs> kind of cold in here this morning. Three curses. Right, we have the three curses here. The curse on the serpent, the curse on the man, the curse on the woman. Let's look at the curse on the serpent first. A lot of people think that this is one of those stories The technical word for it is etiology. It's an etiological tale. Etiology is when you you basically give the origin. You explain how things came to be the way that they actually are. And they think this is a nice little story about how snakes lost their legs, and that's why they now slither across the ground. They used to walk and talk, but, but now they slither and slide because they're cursed by God. People also say that this is one of the reasons why human beings naturally loathe snakes. And a lot of people, I've met a lot of people, I've I've been one of those people who thinks that he's justified in killing snakes, kind of indiscriminately. So I'm not proud to, to admit this, but when I was a teenager and I would go out hunting, quail hunting in the middle of the desert, if I came across a rattlesnake when I was out quail hunting, I wouldn't leave it alone. I'd I mean, I blew its head off. Um, And that's exactly what the devil would have wanted me to do. The the devil wants us to despoil God's good creation. And he would want us to especially despoil snakes. See, this is not a legendary account of how snakes crawl. What is it then? Well, a few chapters later in Genesis we will see what God does with another symbol, with the uh, rainbow. He will repurpose the rainbow. He will say every time after a storm, you look up and you see a rainbow in the sky, I want you, I want you to know this new symbolic meaning, that, that that's a sign of my mercy, that I'll never wash away this place again. It's not as though that there were never rainbows before Noah's flood. It was that after the flood, God said, I've repurposed this, the sign, this symbol for you. And in that same way, it's not as though there were never snakes crawling on the ground before. But now he says, I want you to associate something new when you see a snake on the ground. Because this whole language of licking the dust, eating the dust, crawling on your belly, all of that is metaphorical language for humiliation and judgment. No, it's not that snakes never crawled before. It's that now they are a sign. Have you ever thought, looking at a snake, that that is, that is a sign that the devil is not nearly as powerful as we think that he is in this world today? No, the devil is a crawling, sniveling, pathetic creature who, will be, who is under God's curse and will be fully defeated in the end. And that is why the devil, that's why the devil would love to put every snake on this planet on the endangered species list, because he probably can't bear having to look at the sign of his curse day after day after day. He can't bear the image of such infamy. Verse 15, the curse continues. 
There we read uh, that uh, I will put enmity between you, God says, uh, you the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. The offspring of the serpent in verse 15 are not more snakes. They are, they are snakish people. And here, Moses is teaching us something very important. Jesus picks up on it later. I think it's in the Gospel of John chapter 8, where he looks at the Pharisees and, and says, you know, you are of your father, the devil. Some people in this world will be seduced by Satan's lies. They will follow Satan's advice to be as gods. They will determine what is right and wrong on their own, and their purpose in life is to be true to themselves. Their purpose in life is to be true to themselves. Now, now really, only God could and should be true to himself, right? Because only God is is truly worth being true to himself. Only God is at the center of the universe. Only God deserves to have that kind of um, focus on himself. And yet, isn't it funny that that's the number one piece of advice we give people uh, secularly today? Just be true to yourself. That's actually asking them to be God. And that is the devil's lie. Only God can be true to God. Paul Harvey, the great radio personality, tells a story to highlight the dangers of personal autonomy. He, he tells this story. He says, Eskimos, apparently, they have a unique way that they have learned to kill wolves. They will take a knife, a very sharp knife, and they will drench the knife in the blood of an animal, completely cover it, And then they'll take the knife and go out into the snow and sit the knife upright in the snow. So it's frozen there in an upright position. And and, um, instantly, the smell of the blood spreads out through the woods. And I guess wolves have, like sharks, this incredible ability to smell blood. And so the the blood that's been released draws the wolves in. And as the wolves, as they come to the blade, they start to lick it. And they're licking increases, and they become ravenous in their licking. And of course, they don't realize it, but they are killing themselves right then and there in the snow, thinking that they're finding life. They are eating themselves to death. I think that's a very apt metaphor for um, people today. People, when, when they think when we think we're going to determine what's right and wrong on our own basis. And so I'm going to find life in the places that I wish. At the end of the day, you do that, and you, it, ends you, it, it leaves you feeling more dehumanized. And then you move on to the next blade, and you bleed more. Satan is a murderer. Who's, who, he's a murderer who traffics in suicide. Satan is a murderer who traffics in suicide. He will give you just enough rope to hang yourself. Like, he he wants to kill you, but he wants you to do the dirty work for him. So, two more curses. What is Eve's curse? Verse 16. The curse on the woman is twofold. One is that she would know greater pain in childbearing, and then the other 
she would experience frustration in her relationship to her husband. Greater pain in childbearing. Whenever I hear a married man announce the good news that we are having a baby, I think to myself, no, we are not. (laughs) We is not, buddy, no. She is having a baby. Um, You've got it easy. I think I read somewhere that uh, we are the only the only mammals in the world that experience such intense pain in in giving birth to our own. Maybe one of you zoologists out there will correct me, but I think that's the case. Of course, pain here is not simply the physical discomfort of childbirth. It's all of the suffering and sorrow that a woman endures because she is a mother. It is all the the sorrow of being a mother. There, There are no sorrows like the sorrows of a mother. Dads can have their hearts broken, but that doesn't even, in my opinion, it doesn't even, it, it doesn't even register compared to, you know, what 17 mothers had to go through this week. It doesn't even compare. Then the other part, I'm not going to go into this, but the marital relationship between the man and the woman is messed up afterwards. It becomes a competition for power. She, the woman, desires to control her husband, and he responds by ruling her with this overpowering, unsympathetic, tyrannical leadership. And so you see this, yeah, you see the, the, the power dynamics at work in a marriage and, um, becomes very, very unhealthy. Finally, I want to look at the curse on Adam. The curse on Adam, verse 17 through 19, if you want to look there. The curse on the man is not only a curse on his work, but it's a curse on nature. Verse 17, our relationship with the physical world is now forever broken. Instead of going out there and tilling the soil and working the the ground and up comes uh, flowers and food, now thorns and thistles are the things that come up. Thorns and thistles is such a vivid picture of all the frustration and futility we experience in this physical world. What, who better capture, to capture this than the author of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes 1, the preacher says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes. The sun rises, the sun goes down, the wind blows to the south, around to the north, around and around the wind goes. All things are full of weariness, A man cannot utter it. It's unbearable how frustrating this world is. Which then leads us finally to verse 22, the tree of life. Consider this. God is not being petty when he cuts cuts them off from the tree of life. Let's just imagine for a moment if they decided in a panic, let's run for it. Let's go. Let's, let's make a mad dash into the center of the garden to get the fruit. Do you know what would have happened if that had taken place? They would have gone on living forever and ever like this. Like this. In this world. Can you imagine having to go on forever and ever living in this world? Eternally with broken relationships 
with broken bodies, with broken minds, eternally broken souls, with sinful dispositions, and an eternally broken fellowship with God, that, my friends, would be hell. That would be hell. To have to continue in this place, like this, forever, that would be hell. So by actually putting the cherubim, blocking the way back in there with its flaming sword, you could say that's one of the first steps God ever took to to take man out of hell. I wonder if you're surprised. Uh, I'm sure you're not. I I wasn't. Um, We're just kind of conditioned that, of course, the story must must go on. Of course, there must be more than three chapters of the Bible. You realize, though, don't you, that God wasn't obligated to write any more to this story? It could have stopped right at the end of chapter 3. The Bible could have been a very, very short book, and he would have been justified in doing so. God, I mean, it's not like there was any merit. They didn't deserve to have, have God come and rescue them. The rest of the rescue story, the promised Savior who would crush the head of the serpent, that is all by sheer grace, not because they deserved it. There's no better illustration of Jesus suffering under the weight of the curse than what we read about in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew's account of Jesus' trial and temptation. Kids, okay, here's your moment. Matthew 27, I want you to listen to what Pontius Pilate says. He says, What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And the people replied, Let him be crucified. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Do not underestimate the significance of this crown of thorns. So you always thought the crown of thorns was was just a way to inflict a little more pain by pressing barbs into the flesh of his brow. No, no. What better way to diminish the king of the universe than to crown him with the very curse that hangs over his creation. What better way to humiliate God's king by a humiliated foe who has been vanquished? Uh, A snake wants to humiliate back in return. And what better way to do that than to put thorns and thistles, the very pestilence that covers this world, to put it upon the king's brow? And he let him do it. He didn't come and kill the devil. He let the devil kill him. He beats the devil by burying the thorns and thistles, the curse, his own humiliation and death. He bears it willingly. Let me finish. One writer, such insight, says, On the way into spiritual healing, you always have a sense that God is coming to you and addressing you as a person. On the way into spiritual healing, you always have a sense God is talking to you directly as a person. Um, There's a time when God will turn the tables on you. And instead of you thinking about God in kind of that detached way 
that we usually do, you finally hear God, God speaking to you. Adam, where are you? Come, let's take a walk. But I feel naked and ashamed. Who says you're naked? When I have made clothes for you, clothes that take away your shame and nakedness, righteous robes, more righteous than even the cherubim wear guarding the door. You ever, have you ever heard that? God speaking to you. Because Jesus' death on the cross is the blow that crushes the serpent's head. And his blood and righteousness are the clothes that he fashioned so that you would no longer feel naked and ashamed. You are to be eternally clothed in the mercies of God so that you would no longer be naked and ashamed. Amen.